when we do that, we praise him and worship him personally. And something powerful happens when a group of people come together and all together worship and sing praise to the living God. So that's why we're here. Examination time. Examination time. Every so often in our lives, we are faced with an examination or a test. An examination is a test just to, to measure how we're doing. How do we measure up? Are we close to the 100% mark? Or ha, did I learn the material? Or how healthy am I? Now, I don't know about you, but, but uh, I never relish the thought of examinations. I don't like exams. In fact, men will go 37 years or more without a physical examination, afraid that the doctor might send, find something wrong that needs to be fixed. In school, we view examinations as a necessary evil. And of course, in some schools, grades are never given for exams or courses because receiving a poor grade can irreparably damage a child's self-esteem. Exams, however, accompanied by a grading system, are usually the only motivating factor to get us to study and learn the material. That was the case for me. Now, examinations come in many different forms. You have driver's exams, you have eye exams, you have physical exam, you have a math exam, the bar exam for attorneys or the exam to become a CPA. In school, in jobs and careers, all situations in our life have examinations. And our spiritual life is no different. In our spiritual walk or our faith journey as we move forward, we also have examinations. And most of you can attest to that fact, no pun intended. Today, that just went right over your head. That's okay. It's a first service. Examination time. Um, we're going to look at examination time, and, and as we continue in 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at how Paul speaks to the church at Corinth and to Eau Claire Wesleyan Church about examining our lives. Uh, I put a, put a verse at the top of your notes yeah, 1 Corinthians 4, 4 in the New Living Translation, Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that isn't what matters. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. And that's kind of the, kind of the big idea of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. And we're going, to, we're going to look at most of the chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians in two or three verse segments as we go through. And I want us to start by looking at the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 4. It's on page 925 in the book in the rack, in the Bible in the rack in front of you. It'll also be in the, on the screen uh, in front of you. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 2, first of all. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Faithful. Now, in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul lists five criteria with which to examine our spiritual lives. Five criteria. There are probably more, but we're going to look at just five today. And he says, first of all, he says he himself is under examination. And he also says the people at Corinth are examining him or they're judging him. But in verse 4, he says the one who examines me is the Lord. In other words, this is an examination by God of, of him and of us in our spiritual walk. So what are these five criteria for examination? What are the five criteria? Number one is examined by faithfulness. Examined by faithfulness. In verse two it said, it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. 
Now, two words describe faithful, or those who call to be faithful. The first one is a servant, which comes from the Greek word under rower. Now, we don't know what that means typically today, but an under rower was the, those who rowed at the command of the master on a Roman galley ship. There was a lower bank of oarsmen. Usually there were at least two banks of oarsmen. You've seen, uh, you've seen Ben-Hur, you've seen some of those movies. The galley ship, basically those that were on the lower uh, part were called under rowers, and when the captain said row, they rowed. The second word describing faithful was steward, which was uh, a servant in the household who had great delegated authority, authority over the other workers in the household. So servant and steward. A servant was someone who has a task under God, and a, uh, and, and a servant was one, the servant was one who had the task under God. The steward was one who manages on account of somebody else in the household. And Paul is speaking about himself and the other leaders of the church, specifically he and Apollos. He says, we are, he just talks about himself, he says, we are servants accountable to God, or we're stewards, managers accountable to God. And he's speaking specifically about he and Apollos. He's also talking to leaders in the church, but it, it really applies to every one of us. Its application applies to every one of us, which means all of us are servants or under rowers that are accountable to God and available to his command, whatever he says, and stewards of the gospel or the good news or the secret things of God. So we are accountable to God to manage what he has given us, and that is the gospel. The first criteria of examination, how we measure up to God's expectations as stewards and servants is that word, faithfulness, faithfulness. Can we, can we be counted on? Can, we be, can I be counted on? That's the question. It's not, it's not our abilities, it's not our talents, it's not our spiritual gifts, it's not our background, it's not our position, it's not our wealth, it's not our wisdom, it's not our education. We are not examined by any of those, he says, you are to be examined by faithfulness, faithfulness. Can we be counted on? Now there are several things we think about when we think about faithfulness. The first one is in relationships. Faithfulness in relationships. Are we faithful in relationships? Whether it's uh, with your spouse or children or family, friends, church relationships, work relationships. All of those things, are we faithful in our relationships with one another. But most of all, the most important relationship where we're to be faithful and consistent, reliable and trustworthy is our relationship with God, with God. So faithful in relationships, very important that we examine that and look at that. Secondly, our tasks, letter B, tasks or jobs. These have to do with serving. We're all called to serve and, and he says, are you faithful in your tasks or jobs. Now we can think of home and work and, um, or our, our honeydew lists, all those kinds of things. But in this context, Paul is not talking about that. He's talking about our role in the body of Christ in the church, our role in the church, the ministry that we have been given. All throughout 1 Corinthians, there's the emphasis on spiritual gifts. And the question is, am I being faithful in the use of my spiritual gift or gifts? Do I even know what they are? Am I a good steward? Am I considered faithful? Am I considered faithful? First Peter 4.10 says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. 
You know, over the last 37 years of, of full-time ministry, I've, I've observed many, many people. And I've had the chance to observe what I call the cumulative effect of faithfulness. The cumulative effect of faithfulness. The most effective people in ministry are many times not the most gifted. They're the most faithful. They can be counted on. They're, they're consistent. Sometimes they're plotters, but you always know that what they say they will do. There's this consistent faithfulness. Most people are consistent and faithful, but many of the most gifted people turn out to be flakes. You can't count on them. When we started out in full-time ministry in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, we used to do uh, big Christmas productions. And uh, the Christmas production was, was an outreach and the effort began in the summer with planning and writing and rehearsing. We had full orchestra, we had choir, we had soloists and theatrical lighting sets and costumes. It was an evangelistic outreach to a, a community of about 120,000 people. Six months of preparation, nearly $50,000 budget in today's dollars, over 100 people directly involved, and we did six performances over two weekends. We finished the first weekend, and we are entering the second weekend. And before Friday night's performance, one of my most gifted, and he was incredibly gifted, one of my most gifted male soloists who played a key role and had a pivotal song in a, in a crucial part of this Christmas production, decided to go and join the army. Now, there's nothing wrong with joining the army. Many of you did the same thing at some point. But couldn't it have waited till Monday? I mean, it was like, are you serious? All this effort, all these people involved, and you decide to go join the army on Friday instead of wait till Monday. Total disregard for people and the mission. Very gifted, but let me tell you something. His faithfulness lacked something. He didn't care. Total disregard for the mission to the unchurched and the outreach to people who didn't know Jesus. Most gifted and least reliable. I look at faithfulness, faithfulness in responsibilities and ministries. Third, there's the faithfulness to the gospel, to the gospel. This means faithfulness to the good news, the mysteries of God. It means absolute fidelity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is more than just words. We think of the gospel as, as the truth, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. But this has as much to do or even more to do with, with lifestyle, with lifestyle. It's more than the message of words. It's, it's lifestyle that Jesus incarnated in your life and mine, faithful to that message, living it out. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the gospel. It's called a mystery because it, it is crazy to a lot of people. We spend a lot of time looking at how Christians today talk about God because it's a less, of, less offensive word, it's, less in, it, it's, it's, it's more inclusive because people of all religions believe in some kind of God or supernatural being. And so we try not to offend people by using the name Jesus. Well, that's part of the gospel is that it's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's about Jesus. And Jesus is God, was God, and we can use the name God, but we can't avoid using the name Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 4, 10 to 12 says, 
then know this, you and all people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. They had healed a, a lame man in this context. Said, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The only name, only way, that's fidelity and faithfulness to the gospel, to the gospel. And the first examination comes to you and me as faithfulness, faithfulness in relationships, tasks, or jobs, and where we serve in, in the gospel. Remember, the one who examines us is the Lord. The second criteria of examination is examined by motives, examined by motives. Verses four and five. Verse four says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. <clears throat> motives, motives. You can't see, can't see motives. And we first of all find letter A that nothing can be hidden from God. Nothing can be hidden from God. The Bible says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. When, where, when does most crime take place? In daylight? Well, it does take place in daylight, but most people wait till dark. Okay? Wait till dark. Why? Because we think God can't see us in the dark, and people at least may not be able to see us committing crime in the dark. Where does most sin occur? Maybe in the dark, but usually just in hidden places, and that hidden place usually is in our heart. We can hide, we can hide that. No one can see what I'm thinking. Okay? Nobody can see my motives. And so, so the, the good news is if God wants to examine us, he examines our hearts and motives. Nothing is hidden from him. So don't try to hide it. Don't pretend. <laughs> you can see it. I, I've told people before when they go through tough circumstances and they're mad at God um, and they don't, they're afraid God's going to strike them dead. Just tell him he knows it. He knows what you're thinking. He knows all that. Uh, read the Psalms. David expressed every emotion you can imagine and he lived a full life and God dealt with him. God loved him. Anyway, so the, what's inside of us, God, God sees. There's nothing hidden from God. And God can see my motives. And God examines our motives. Secondly, God exposes our motives. God exposes our motives. Someday, all those thoughts and deeds done in darkness and motives, he says, will be brought into the open. Okay, it's all going to come out. So I guess we're all in trouble. That's okay. We're all in trouble. But Paul says, stop judging other people's motives. He said, God's going to do that. God will do that. And then on the positive side, let her see, when it comes to the motives... He says, our praise comes from God. Ultimately, we're accountable to God who sees the real motives, okay? We, we can do things with wrong motives and we can, we can make ourselves look good or maybe people don't think we're that good and whatever, but God is the one who examines and the one to whom we're accountable. Why do we take certain actions? Why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? What are my motives? Psalm 15, one to two says, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart. Truth. There, there's a word 
we're all familiar with, it's called integrity, integrity. <clears throat> the word integrity comes from in, in, a word integers, those of you that like math, uh, integers are whole numbers, fractions are part numbers. Integra means whole, fraction means part of. And integrity means the public person and the private person are the same, they are whole, okay? Integrity, so the private person and the public person are whole. What you see is what you get. There's no pretending. God sees that. The question is, do we? Some will define it this way. They'll talk about personality and character. <clears throat> personality is what we allow others to see. What we allow others to see. Character is what we truly are. And if there's a difference between those, we need to find a way to integrate those two. So it's not this personality and character. There needs to be wholeness. Are they the same? Why do we do what we do? There's a guy named Murray Weidenbaum who is an ethicist and, and he advises top leaders on ethics. And he says there are two, <clears throat> two criteria for right and wrong. Two criteria, only two. He said, number one, is it legal? Okay, look at it, is, is it legal? Number two, would it be all right with Phyllis? Who's Phyllis? Oh, it's his wife. It's his wife. <laughs> he knows that he needs to make sure it's legal, and he knows his conscience, his wife will help him discern right from wrong. Uh, we all have someone in our life, hopefully, that, that will help us. And I have to say, is it, is it legal and is it okay with Judy? If it's okay with Judy, it's probably, probably good. Examined by motives, motives. Number three, examined by attitude. Examined by attitude. Verses six and seven says, now brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not? Paul is writing to a bunch of people who are using their spiritual gifts. They are involved, they're engaged in ministry, they're serving, they're involved in, in working in the church. But instead of viewing these gifts as something given to them, totally undeserved, they saw themselves as having possession of the gifts and they were arrogant and prideful. They were arrogant and prideful. They thought of themselves as superior. And, and if they had certain gifts, then I must be better than other people. How many people think they're superior because they speak in tongues. Or because they have the gift of healing. Or because they have the gift of teaching. Or they have great faith, or they've been blessed with the gift of giving, or effecting of miracles. There are certain gifts that, that lend themselves more to pride because they're more visible and, and uh, susceptible to having pride about it. Now helps, probably not so much. When's the last time a person arrogantly boasted that they had the gift of helps? <laughs> probably not, probably not. Or mercy, or boasted that they were a servant or steward. The, the, the Corinthian problem began with the presumption that somehow they deserved God's gifts. And then presuming they were better than others without those gifts. And that's a pervasive problem in the church today. 
One writer says their pride in persons reflect a lack of proper perspective, a lack of gratitude. The fall has given us all a high view of ourselves and a corresponding low view of others. (laughs) What was the first sin in the universe? Pride, Satan, raised himself up, said, I want to be above. It's very insidious, very insidious. They allowed, these Corinthians allowed their gifts to be a sign of status and a source of dissension. And there is no ground for anyone exalting himself or herself over another since any differences are ultimately attributable to God. God is the one who gives these gifts. That's why they're called the gifts of grace. Gifts of grace. Grace leads to gratitude. The Corinthians were ungrateful. They were living in pride. And you know what? Pride divides a church. Humility draws people together. Paul, a very humble servant of God, calls the church at Corinth an E.C. Wesleyan church to humility, to humility. An attitude of recognizing that all we have comes from God. The fourth criteria, probably going to be your favorite and mine, it's examined by willingness to sacrifice. (laughs) Willingness to sacrifice. Very interesting passage. Paul goes through uh, some uh, litany of issues during, uh, that he and his, his friends had experienced in ministry. Eight to, verses 8 to 13 says this. Already you have all you want. Already have you become, have become rich. You have become kings and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We worked hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Wow. He, He experienced some pretty significant sacrifices. It is it's appropriate today because we tend to see the, the blessing of God in terms of material prosperity and physical health and money and good times. And Paul, in contrast to that, writes about the apostles. Danger, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sacrifice beyond imagination, condemned to death, considered fools, hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. We don't experience much of that in America today. You go over to North Korea, you go to some of the countries where Christians are persecuted, that is where they're at. Examined by their willingness to sacrifice, an amazing price that's paid. They were reviled, persecuted, and slandered. They they were working with their hands as well as working in ministry. They were considered the scum of the earth. Does that mean we all ought to become scum of the earth to be spiritual? No, no. But it does mean a willingness to sacrifice, to follow Jesus, whatever the cost, whatever the cost. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We find that Jesus told his disciples that they hated me, they're going to hate you. And we wonder, why in the world are people turning on us? Why are Christians 
being reviled and, and, and slandered and looked down upon and whatever. You know what? Goes to the territory. We've lived in this, in this Christian nation, this bubble for so long. We say this, and, and it doesn't mean we ought to take it lying down and we shouldn't exercise rights and try to maintain the, the free amendment rights that we have, all of those things. But, but why be surprised if people hate us because of Christ? Willingness to sacrifice. This is part of the denial of self. It's part of the theology of the cross. We live in, in, in the world of easy believism. Come to Jesus, he'll forgive your sins, being peace, peace, prosperity, and joy, fulfill all your need. He's paid it all. You don't have to do anything. Well, we, we can't do anything to earn it. And he paid it all. But sometimes there's a willingness to sacrifice. It needs to be there. We are often rich and well-fed, but blind to the true nature of our needs. This doesn't mean that one must suffer in order to be a genuine disciple. Paul just considered this the norm. For Paul, discipleship meant sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And Jesus himself said that we are to die, deny self. There's an interesting, interesting uh, excerpt from a book. It's, this is, I've referred to this, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers by Christian Smith. Uh, they interviewed some of these teenagers and one of the interviews was the 14-year-old white conservative Protestant girl from Idaho. Just asking questions. These are the questions. Wanted to find out where she was in her faith. So it says, when you think of God, what image do you have of God? In other words, what is God like? Um, good. Powerful. Okay. Anything else? She said, tall. Tall. Big. Big. You know. Do you think God is active in people's lives or not? Uh, I don't know. You're not sure? Different people have different views of him. What about your view? She said, what do you mean? Do you think God is active in your life? In my life? Yeah. Would you say you feel close to God or not really? Yeah, I feel close. Yawn. Where do you get your ideas about God? She said, the Bible, my mom, church, experience. What kind of experience? He's just done a lot of good in my life. Like, what examples of good? I, I don't know. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear. What good has God done in your life? I, well, I have a house, parents. I have the internet. I have the phone. I have cable the sum total of God's work and goodness. And that's how we measure, some people measure God's goodness in life. These are young people raised in the church that they interviewed, and it's very reflective of all of those things. Where is the willingness to sacrifice? Where's the denial of self? The examination. It's tough. Examined by the willingness to sacrifice. Number five, 
The last criteria for examination, ex examined by power. Examined by power. Verse 18, just the last two verses of the chapter four. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Power. Leon Morris writes, one feature of the gospel view of the kingdom is that in it is God's power. The kingdom of God is not simply good advice, not just in word. They need God's power to enable them to live as befits his kingdom. We, we can't live this life in our own strength. There's no way. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus didn't say, by their words you will know them, but by their fruits you will know them. The world is full of talk. We need action. We need power, power for living, and power to live out what God has called us to be and to do. Victorious living. We have lived lives of defeat and despair, never receiving all that God has for us. And he says, I want you to have a life filled with power. And that examination of saying, God, am I a, a vehicle for power? Am I opened up to your power? Am I experiencing your power? Is there anything in my life that's different because of my relationship with Jesus and I have the Holy Spirit in me? That's the question. God has a life of power for us. Examine your life. Are you experiencing the power of God's Holy Spirit? Now the words today are not condemnation, but it's a call to remember, to examine, to examine. How are you doing in your spiritual walk? It's examination time, examined by faithfulness, examined by motives, examined by attitude, examined by willingness to sacrifice, and examined by power, not words. Good news is one exam does not make the whole grade. God gives us many exams, and that's part of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us these exams, not to destroy us or make us feel bad, or to, but to challenge us to look at where we are at so we can be stronger. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you by your grace and your power would help us to see our need of you. And that as we, as we examine our lives under your microscope, that you would give us the power to make those changes that need to be made. God, we thank you that the church at Corinth was a lot like us. And that we can learn and draw application from that. I just pray, God, that you'll continue to speak to our lives today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?
I'd like us to take some time to just respond today. You can respond however you like. I'd like to invite you to, if you want to come and stand or kneel up front, but that we would express that we need God today. And if you would do that and express it publicly and just say, God, I need you, then I just want to invite you to come and stand or kneel, whatever you're comfortable doing um, at the front this morning. Let's, let's continue the song, Lord, I need you. Thank you for this reminder, and I just pray that you would meet every person where they are in their sense of need, in their point of need this morning, and that you would continue to work in each and every one of our lives. In Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace.
you desire prayer, there will be a prayer team up here to pray if you need. God bless you.